0: Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount and how we can apply it to our lives. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about a really cool resource that we're giving away with this series. We understand that spiritual growth can be really hard, and I personally get that even when you leave having heard one of my sermons with the best intentions to apply it to your life, turning those best intentions into real life actions can be pretty difficult. And so with this series we're giving away devotional sheets. These devotional sheets contain daily activities that will take about 10 minutes for you to complete. The activities are varied from day to day. One day has a devotional writing written by me, another has questions, another has guided prayer, and there's a few other things too. I really do think that these Devotional sheets will help you to immerse yourself more fully in the passages of scripture that I'm preaching on in this series and I hope that you will get a copy. You can get a copy by visiting one of our services or for you online listeners, you can get one by going to wilsonville.church/sotm. That's wilsonville.church/sotm. The sotm stands for Sermon on the Mount. Hey, again thanks for listening. I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Hey, good morning everybody. Um, So, I'm aware that for most Christians, they probably haven't thought about the Old Testament hardly at all. And I'm more aware that if you've thought about the Old Testament, you've probably not thought much about your relationship to the Old Testament. Like, does it matter to your life? Do you need to live out the commandments and the laws that are in the Old Testament? Uh, You've never really considered if you should wear two different kinds of fabric or if you should have tassels hanging from your hat. You know, these are not things you really ponder. And and even more, you've probably never, ever, ever thought about Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament, except for maybe he fulfilled some prophecy. And uh, I... Promised in this series that what we're going to do is we're going to do our best to make the Sermon on the Mount, this long, the longest and most influential sermon preached by Jesus, we're going to do our best to make it applicable to our lives. And the goal in this series is not to say, wow, Jesus, great teacher, although the Sermon on the Mount shows us that. He's an underrated teacher in my mind. The goal is to say, wow, Jesus, amazing teacher how does this affect my life some 2,000 years later? Why does it matter? That's the question in the video, right? And usually when the conversation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, the back part of your Bible and the new part of your Bible, or the question of the Old Testament and Jesus, usually when that's brought up, it's brought up in a very academic way. Like like, hey, how does that relate? Let's have a theoretical conversation about it. Maybe we'll have a little argument. It's reserved to Bible colleges and seminaries and places like that. But usually, maybe more than any other subject, if we're talking about things that actually apply to our lives, this would not be near the top of the list. Um, I would say I enjoy those academic conversations, but but again, it's not something like, how, why does that matter? Why does it matter how Jesus relates to the Old Testament? Why does it matter if the Old and New Testaments go together? And, and today we're going to look at a, a passage of Scripture where Jesus talks about how He relates to the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament. And we're going to see in the same passage that Jesus begins to reveal how we relate to it. And it's gonna be, I love this, I love this. Uh, it, it took me a while because I, you know, I've I've stood up here already last week at the beginning of the series and said this is gonna be about applying this to our lives and this passage more than any of the others, perhaps in all the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, wow, does that have any meaning for me? I mean, is there anything? But But as I... As I dug and tried to figure out what is Jesus saying, this is what's cool about this passage. As a preacher anyway, I don't know if it'll matter to you. But it it was a hard one to say, well, what is that? What does it matter? But as I dug and I learned more, this just has huge implications for For our lives and and that's what i'm excited to share with you today because what this is going to talk about is what we just sang about just a minute ago and that's righteousness and we'll talk about what that means later in the sermon but righteousness is a very important word and jesus talks about how we can have it and so this is how it starts Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Law and prophets refers to the entirety of the Old Testament. It's just a, a colloquial way of saying the Old Testament. This, this, for them, it was the scripture. This is the, the entirety of their scripture before this New Testament was written, after Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And so he says, look, don't think I've come. Don't think I've come to take away the law and the prophets, the scripture that you have. To lessen them, to remove their importance. Don't think I've come to abolish them to make them obsolete. I haven't done that at all. And in fact, it's believed, and this seems logical considering that Jesus takes time out of this sermon that, like I said, is very applicable. I mean, he talks about anger and divorce and things like that, and he he pauses to say something about his relationship to the scriptures. And it seems that maybe there were some rumors, some ideas about what Jesus had come to do and that those rumors may have centered around Jesus perhaps coming to make their scriptures obsolete. One of the things people say about Jesus and his teaching is he teaches as one that has authority. That's kind of a common refrain in in Jesus' ministry. It's like he doesn't teach like everybody else who is relying on the authority of the people who came before them and the people that came before them and the people that came before them who are relying on the authority of the Scripture, the God-given Scripture. They say, he, he seems like he preaches and he teaches with his own power and authority, his own weight that isn't based on what people have said before him. And perhaps out of this arose the question. Maybe he's going to give us a new scripture. Maybe he's going to make the old one obsolete. And Jesus squashes that, right? I mean, just says, do not think I've come to abolish it. Don't think I've come to, to, to lessen its importance, to remove it from your minds, to make it, you know, not something that you need to pay attention to anymore. I haven't come to do that. Instead, I've come to fulfill the scriptures. This word's important, and uh, I don't know if this will be helpful at all, but the Greek word that translates fulfill can also be translated to fill or make full, and I know that's basically the same thing, but for me it's it's a much better word picture because fulfill seems very generic, but I know what it looks like to fill up a glass of water. And I think what Jesus is really getting at here is I've come to finish or fill like a like a glass of water that wasn't full The scriptures that you have had for a very long time was that helpful I think it was helpful for me anyway and so Jesus says look I'm not removing their importance in fact I've come in order to fulfill or finish the scriptures and there's three ways that Jesus does this he completes the doctrinal teaching. I mean, there's all of these ideas about God that are presented to us in the Old Testament. and For example, like the Old Testament gets this really bad rap as, as being this, this, this book that paints this picture of God that's mean and angry and frustrated all the time. But there are a plethora of passages in the Old Testament where it talks about how, how slow to anger and rich in love and abounding in grace God is. And when you look at the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the person of Jesus and ultimately what Jesus would do on the cross by dying for our sins and rising again, all of a sudden, those doctrinal teachings of the Old Testament that said God is like this, they're filled because we have a, a living picture of God being like that. I mean, no longer was God just this creator that, that kind of left us and said good luck or whatever and presented us with a few words, but now he was a creator who had entered into his creation and showed us what our creator was like. And then there's the realization of promises. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He fills and finishes the Old Testament by being the realization of the promises. I mean, God throughout the history of the world had said, hey, I'm going to send someone who's going to make everything right. He's going to write the laws on your hearts. He is going to allow for you to be filled with my spirit. He is going to make everything good and right and great. And the people that even wrote these things I mean, God said, here, write this, and they wrote them. They were left thinking, how in the world is that ever going to happen? I mean, how is our sin going to be taken away from us? How is that going to be removed? How is How are we going to enter a kingdom that, that, according to these words, seems perfect when I know that the world is anything but perfect? And then Jesus comes, and all of a sudden we understand how the Scriptures are fulfilled, but not only that, we see them fulfilled. He would make things right by dying for our sins and allowing us to have a good relationship with God that was broken when we chose to sin against Him. And because Jesus came and died and rose again, we now can look forward to the day when He will return and we will be already forgiven of our sins and be able to live in a heavenly kingdom. And then Jesus fulfills the Scriptures in in maybe the most pragmatic way. He's perfectly obedient to Him which allows and shows us that those first two things are true. Jesus completes the doctrinal teaching of the Old Testament. Well, how is that possible? Well, because he's God. Well, how do we know that? And what makes us believe that? Well, he lived a, a perfectly sinless life, and then he rose again. That's even cooler, right? And and what allowed for him to be the realization of the promises? Well, he never Broke any of the laws of God. And so he could be our perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice that is eternal, not like the animals that were killed day after day, week after week, year after year in the Old Testament in order to cover up for our sins. I was uh, reading uh, the Bible with my daughter the other day and she wanted to read the Passover story. Or actually, she was looking at it on her iPad. The curriculum that we use at our church. Um, connects to an iPad app and we love that and the kids can listen to the stories and then there's activities afterwards that connect and and, and as they listen to these stories there's these interactions and you can poke the animal or whatever and the animal will do a backflip or uh, a person will spill water or whatever. And and the story of the Passover in the Old Testament is the story of the Jewish people's exile from Egypt and on the last day until they were set free from the slavery and oppression that they were under, God says, hey, I want you to slaughter this animal, I want you to paint blood above the door frame and then I will pass over your houses. And so I, everything's pretty, you know, kid friendly in this Bible app, but, but in, this, in this one particular scene of this story, these people are just dipping in like paint buckets, it's a paintbrush, and they're painting it over their doorway. And Hazel's watching this over and over, and I'm thinking, this is blood. <laughs> like, this is, this, is, this is gross, right? And I'm kind of like getting a little weirded out, like, Hazel, next page. You know, I get like that as a dad sometimes. All right, time to move on. Uh, I guess, uh, we're done here, you know? And, and it was weirding me out, but, but that was a, a, a type. It, it showed us something that was gross but something that was eternally important. Jesus, the perfect lamb, the sinless and spotless lamb, would die on a cross. He would shed his blood. And it wouldn't have to happen over and over again. It would have to happen once for us to be able to accept it and take the forgiveness that he offered. And so Jesus fulfills the laws in these ways, but there's this this other way and that's seen in Romans ten four. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So out of his perfect obedience becomes, it makes it so that we, can fulfill the law in some way because we have sinned against the law of God, the commandments of God, God's will for our lives. We have done things that we knew we should not do. Even if you're not a Christian, you're not even sure about this whole Bible thing, you know you've done things that for whatever reason you knew were wrong, whatever reason that was. And so Jesus, out of his perfect obedience to the law, fulfilling all the commandments perfectly, allowed for us to in some way fulfill the law Because he made up the difference. Our glass was half empty. It was never going to be full. Our glass probably wasn't even half empty. Our glass was barely filled at all. And Jesus came and through his perfect obedience and then sacrificed on our half, filled us up the rest of the way. And so Jesus says, look, the Old Testament's not obsolete because of me. In fact, it's the foundation For so much of what I came to do. That makes it more important in a lot of ways. Without Jesus, the Old Testament is this incomplete book that has very little significance for our lives, us who are not Jewish anyway. But because Jesus came, it takes on a new and more important significance. He even goes further and says in Matthew 5.18, the next verse, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. This thing's not going away. The life application commentary said the Old Testament endures forever as a revelation of God's will for humans throughout history until all is accomplished. The importance of the Old Testament has not been negated by the coming of Jesus. In fact, it's probably been increased because it shows us all, it shows us much of what Jesus came to do. There was a uh, man who, a heretic, who rewrote the New Testament without any of the references to the Old Testament at all. He just cut him out of there. And there's a lot, by the way, Matthew up to this point in his gospel. If you read the first four chapters of the book of Matthew, especially the first three, the whole deal is saying, hey, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. It's incredible, one of my favorite things about the Gospel of Matthew, and you should read it, Uh, Christmas is coming, and so, you know, those first chapters really connect, but one of my favorite things about it, it's just subtle, I don't know why I like it so much, but it's such incredible proof of Jesus, it's like, it shows how Jesus, according to the Old Testament, can be from three different places. Because he's born in one place, he has to move, he has to go to another place. And Matthew's like, look, it said it in the Old Testament. He'd be from Bethlehem, and he'd be from here, and he'd be from here. It's incredible. And so Matthew, up to this point, has said, look, Jesus is fulfilling these things. And then this, this heretic came along and said, nah, nah, nah. the Old Testament became obsolete. And what this guy's followers did is even worse. They flipped Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to say, I have come to abolish the law, not fulfill it. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite. I have not come to remove the importance of the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. And then he says this next thing, that this is where, this is where it, it becomes very applicable to our lives. But it also is a very hard teaching. And, and here's what he says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, two things could really mislead you on this passage. The first one is this. If you ignore the rest of the Bible on this topic, then you're going to just sorely misunderstand what Jesus is trying to say. Uh, The New Testament talks a lot about the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, spends a great deal of his writing space talking about how Gentiles do not need to live out the Old Testament commands and laws. That's what Paul spends like the entirety of the book of Galatians talking about. If you ever read Galatians, you're not understanding it fully unless you know that there's this group of people called the Judaizers, and the Judaizers are telling Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, that they need to be obedient to all the laws and rules of the Old Testament. Paul writes Galatians. He says, look, if you think that, that your relationship with God is based on those rules and principles, you're, you're mistaken and you're running the risk of, of, of compromising your salvation. And then there's this thing called the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts, and, and this same issue is coming to a head. There's a group of Jews saying, hey, these new converts who are not Jews, they don't dress like us, they don't talk like us, they don't do our holidays, they, they're not doing what the Bible says. And Paul and Peter, they're in conflict over this. I mean, the two you know most public figures of the early church are in conflict about this issue, and there's this letter sent to the leaders in the Jerusalem church saying, hey, what do you guys think about this? You're in charge around here. And they get together and they meet and, and they say, yeah, we've decided that the people that are Gentiles don't need to follow the laws except they need to not eat um, blood and they need, to not, they need to abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, and, and, and so you need to know that in order to ask the question like, what is Jesus really saying here? I mean, Romans 7, 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. That's interesting. And so I want to pause here. This just a little pause because what I'm going to say next is, is not going to really answer the question that I think I've just put in front of you uh, because I think Jesus switches Gears. I think he, he changes directions on what he's talking about. But th- it does beg the question how much of the Old Testament are we required to obey? I mean, I think we all go like, oh, the Ten Commandments, we should obey those, right? I mean, we're all just kind of there. And 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 yet we would we would disagree on so many. I mean, our tattoo's bad. Because if you look at the Old Testament, it seems to say you shouldn't get a tattoo. And so is everybody here, and there are people, uh, I mean, are you just t- worse Christians than me who like my body better, you know? Uh, who would never deface my body with the tassel. Are you worse than me? It's a question that, that needs to be asked. Not whether you're worse than me, but you know, like, is, this, is it wrong? Why aren't I wearing tassels around? Why am I wearing two different kinds of fabric? And so, people have laid forth just... Just four answers to this question. And, and uh, one is just none of it. You don't need to think about the Old Testament at all. You can, just, you can just get rid of it, and it points to Jesus, and there's prophecy. But you don't need to think about the Old Testament at all. At all. Some people would say all of it. What I find interesting about the people in that group is that usually they don't. Try to follow all of it. Uh, but you have none of it and all of it. And then you have these two that I think are, are much better and much, more, uh, much closer to what the New Testament says to us. You need to follow all that is not negated in the New Testament. So if the New Testament has not said, you no longer need to, to do this or live this out, then you need to obey it and still follow it. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, God declares all food clean. In the New Testament, Jesus declares all food clean. And so now it's been negated, the Old Testament section on this, and so we no longer have to worry about whether we're eating the wrong kind of fish. Like all seafood is a good is good for you to do. Yeah. Except for like clam, that's disgusting. But um, <laughs> And some of you are like, none of the seafood is good. God messed that law up. Uh, and then the last one is this. And frankly, I'll just be forthcoming with you, this is where I fall. Uh, This is that everything that is restated in the New Testament must be followed. And so you see how that's different, right? It's subtle, but it's different. One says, if God said you don't have to do it in the New Testament, that's when you're released from it. The other one says, well, if, if God didn't say anything about it, then you're free from it. But if he's restated it in the New Testament, then you need to still continue to follow it. Now you say, wait a minute, are you trying to throw out the Ten Commandments? You know, I mean, here's the deal. Nine of the Ten Commandments are restated in the New Testament. The only one that isn't is the Sabbath day. And, And so for me personally, let me just say where I've fallen on this issue I do not think that the Sabbath day, taking a Sabbath, is something that is mandated by Scripture for us anymore. I think that the other eight are, you still can't kill anybody even if you feel like it, you still shouldn't steal or lie or commit adultery or idolatry or take the Lord's name in vain. Things such as that because all of those have been restated for us in the New Testament. Now where you fall is not so important to me. But I do think that this passage is important for reminding us that we should consider that maybe. I mean, is, should you get a tattoo or not? Should you have little tassels hanging from you that remind you of the things that God has done? Do you need to live out the Old Testament laws? Was Sukkot not just a cool event for us to do spiritually? Or were you bad and wrong if you didn't partake in it with us? It's a question to ask yourself. But the other thing is, well, wait a minute. How could you possibly come to that conclusion if Jesus has just said, I have not come to abolish it? Well, first, abolish doesn't mean that he hasn't come so that we don't have to follow all the commands anymore. Jesus is saying, look, I haven't come to make it obsolete. That's what he's saying. But there's this other switch and this, this took me a while to discover. I think that we need to pay close attention to the word commands. He doesn't say in this passage, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these laws or writings of the prophet, he says Commands. And I think what Jesus is doing here is not saying you need to follow the entirety of the Old Testament law. That would be contradictory to much of what we read in the New Testament. What I think he is saying is you need to follow everything that I'm about to say next. I think Jesus switches here and he says, look, I haven't come to abolish the law. It's important because it points to me and it shows you what I've come to do in a lot of ways. But, but, That does not lower or lessen the standards of holiness that God has placed upon humanity. Because I think that's where our minds want to go. Even when we read the rest of the New Testament and we read things such as we have been saved by grace apart from the law, and we go, I gotta do what I want, I'm saved. I grew up in churches like that. I think most of the American church is that way now. I think we have lowered the standard of holiness that God has placed into our lives because we said, we've said, we said, rightfully, God has saved us by grace. It is not something I could ever earn or accomplish on my own. I would never be fully obedient to God. I cannot work my way into heaven no matter how much money I give to my church, no matter how many sins I can avoid, no matter how hard I work to serve my fellow man, I will never earn my way into heaven. I can only be saved by grace. Correct. But out of that we go, yeah, I'll live however I want. And so Jesus says, look, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've fulfilled it. And because i fulfilled it, it might lead you to think that the standards have been lowered. But in fact, if you don't live out the commands that I'm about to give you, then you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you will then you'll be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice both of those things are are in the kingdom. You're in. Jesus is talking to his core group of disciples here. He's not saying, this is how you get into heaven by being obedient to what I'm about to say. He's saying, look, you're destined for heaven. In fact, you're part of the kingdom of heaven, which basically means the church. Not a church, but the church. The invisible church as it has been called in theological circles. All Christians, you're part of it. But if you want to do it, great then you're going to listen to what I'm about to say. If you want to do it poorly, well, you can ignore everything I'm about to say. Jesus, in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see there, it changes the paradigm. He says, Look, it's about love. It summarizes them. And you know what some people do? They say, Oh, well, it's all about love. I'll do whatever I want. I'll ignore what God has said. You know, people like this, right? This is like a common thing in our society today in the church. Like, well, God just wants me to love people, and so I'll ignore everything He said because that's, if it feels like love, then it must be love. But Jesus, in those verses I just read, He said, Love God, love your neighbor as yourself because all the prophets, the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He's saying at the core of our teachings is love. This does not negate the commands that I'm going to give you. It just shows you what's at the heart of them. This next verse is is perhaps more telling. It says in, in 520, For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Probably for a first century Jewish person, one of the most shocking statements that Jesus would make. Um, mainly because the teachers of the law were, were the people who were curators of the Old Testament. They were the people who upheld the Old Testament, the Scripture. For them, it was all the Scripture. I need to restate that. They upheld the Scripture. They taught the Scripture. They showed people what it was to live out the Scripture. They gathered people around them that would be their disciples so that they could teach them how to, what the Scripture said, and then teach them to teach other people what the Scripture said. I mean, these were your Bible scholars. Jesus says, your righteousness has to go beyond them. And the Pharisees, I mean, this is like another level. I mean, the Pharisees were this strict religious sect that was, I mean, they devoted their whole lives to being obedient to what God had commanded. There were 613 laws that they had to live out. That was the Old Testament laws and the oral traditions that were in place to help you live out the Old Testament laws. So it's like you can't work on the Sabbath, which means you can't take 50 steps on the Sabbath because then you might be, you know, in a gray area. And so they would take the gray area and say like, let's move the gray area so far over here that nobody's ever going to be disobedient to God. And they would just work and work and work to live out these commandments to make sure that they never did anything that would take away from their holiness and their righteousness. And Jesus says, hey, here's the deal. Your righteousness better surpass their righteousness. Now, two things come into play here. Before diving deeper into this passage, I would have told you this, and this is still true, but I think there's another thing that's important here. The, the first thing you need to understand is that we'll never, like I've already said in this sermon, live up to the righteous standards of God. And I think in one way this just shows us that it's impossible for us to earn a relationship with God it can never be done. We can only have a relationship with God by placing our faith in what Jesus did when he died on a cross and rose again. This is a big deal there's so many people there's so many people all around us that kind of like the idea of God, they they believe in God. And they just assume because they're better than the guy at work that they're going to get into heaven someday. And what we, know, what we know is that being better is not going to work because the Pharisees were better. The teachers of the law were better than everybody around them. They cared more about the things of God than everybody around them. And Jesus said, you've got to surpass that. And the New Testament shows us that, uh, that it's just, there's no way. We cannot earn our way into heaven we're all sinners, we're all living as enemies of God before we give our lives to Jesus because we come to believe that he is the savior of the world. That's it. And so in one way, this just, this just says like, hey, don't think that you can earn, earn righteousness. And by the way, righteousness is a fancy word to mean a right relationship. The word, I've said this in sermons before, was used for a husband and wife having a right relationship parents to children having a good and right relationship friends that's at its core it is more nuanced than that but at its core is a good healthy right relationship and when the bible uses it most of the time it's talking about a right relationship with god and jesus is saying being better being pretty good (laughs) being okay it's not going to get you a right relationship with god only he is because only he fulfills the old testament but there's this other thing, because that's, that's applicable if you're not a Christian. But is there any application to this if you are a Christian? And I probably would have said no before I studied this week, but, but I think there is. And, and here's what's at play here with the Pharisees. Jesus has, and the teachers of the law, Jesus has almost all of his earthly conflicts with these two groups of people. They're the ones that want to kill him at the end of his life. And there's a couple things that, that are important about them and their efforts at righteousness that help us see how applicable this is to us. And uh, this book called The Message or the Sermon on the Mount says, They made the law's permissions less permissive and the law's demands less demanding. Let me read that again. I think it's really important. They made the law's permissions less permissive and the law's demands less demanding. If God was pretty open to something in the Old Testament, a lot of times they just tightened up the grip on it and said, no, 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 that's, you're flirting too much with the line. But if something was really clear in the Old Testament, in order to make it so that they could be obedient to it, it's hard, right? Then they just kind of opened it up a little bit and said, well, God kind of probably meant something more like this. It was all in an effort to be righteous. Because if you make the permissible things more permissive, then, then it's easy to do, right? It's, I mean, less permissive. It's easy to know where you stand. But if you, if you soften the big ones, then it's easier to be obedient to it, right? And so you, you take away the gray areas, or you add the gray areas, depending on how difficult the law is to obey, we'll see oaths, right? Like making promises to people. That's coming up in the book of Matthew. We'll we'll talk about that in a few weeks. I don't want to really have to fulfill all my promises. And so maybe we'll just say like, only if you swear on the things of God, then do you have to follow through. Because then I won't really break it. I mean, that's not really swearing at all. If I just swear on my children, you know, that's okay. You know, I mean, then like no big deal. God won't be mad at me then. It's like crossing your fingers behind your back, right? I mean, this is what the Pharisees were doing. Hey, it's not a lie if I cross my fingers and put it behind the back, and so therefore, if I lie to you and my fingers are crossed, I'm still good with God. This was kind of the mentality. But if it's a gray area, don't work on the Sabbath. Like, what does work mean? You know, like, what is that? What does that mean? Well, don't take 50 steps. 50 steps. Can't, I mean, you got to get your Fitbit out and you got to make sure that you haven't gone too far because if you, if you go too far, then maybe you've broken the law and you're not right with God. And there's this other thing about the Pharisees. The other thing about the Pharisees is that they majored on the minors and they minored on the majors. They made a big deal out of things that God was like, hey, you probably shouldn't. But when God's like, don't do it, they were like, eh, what did he really mean? mean doesn't that sound I think that's so familiar to our I mean (laughs) to what we experience in so many churches today because we want to feel good like we're really being obedient to God and and so as long as we just focus on certain areas and forget the rest of the areas and don't talk about the things that we really struggle with then then it's going to be you know we'll be right we'll be okay we'll be all right I mean I see I honestly I see it in this I see it in like you know, we make such a big deal about homosexuality, but we don't really talk that much about divorce because one of them is something that a far higher percentage of people struggle with than the other one, right? And, and so it's, it's easier for us to just make a big deal out of one and not the other. It's just kind of how it goes. And the Pharisees were no different. I need to read you a couple stories uh, about Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees because they're very telling about what Jesus is saying when he says, your righteousness, your relationship with God must be better than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In Matthew 15, one through six, this is what we read. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. You see this majoring on the minors? (laughs) Like, it's just, wow, doesn't seem like that big a deal, but let's make a big deal out of it. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Big deal. (laughs) Big deal. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. And so what they were saying is, look, I don't need to support my parents financially because I'm going to call this money godly money. It's their tradition. It's the way they've done it for a long time, but they're literally just saying, I don't care about what the word of God says. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then Matthew 15, 16 through 20, it just just gets right to the heart of what Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount. This is just after this story. He gives a parable and the disciples want an explanation of the parable and Jesus says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. And that's a clue, that's a clue. We're going to read one more story. But it's a clue that Jesus is talking about something that is inside of us, not something that's necessarily visible. Matthew twenty-three twenty-seven through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You hypocrites. So all of Matthew 23 pretty much is just Jesus just giving the business to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I mean, it is it is not friendly. I mean, he is coming right at them. You're evil, you're bad, you're evil, you're bad, you're evil for bad. You get the point after like six verses and then Jesus just keeps going. You're evil, you're bad. Let me tell you why. And, and here's what he says here. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What Jesus is doing in this passage is he is turning righteousness inside out. He's saying this is not about trying to do all of the right things. A righteousness that goes beyond the Pharisees and teachers of the law is a righteousness that starts inside of you and spills out in the way you live your life. What follows in this, and and this is what we'll look at in the next several weeks as we continue this journey through the Sermon on the Mount, what follows is often called the antithesis section. You, You probably have heard this if you've been in church at all, where Jesus is like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And all he's doing in these passages is saying, you've heard it said, don't do this thing on the outside, but I'm telling you what it looks like on the inside. And in this, it's very important to not just go, well, that doesn't apply because my righteousness can never be better than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They were so strict, they had 613 commands. What Jesus is saying is it can be. He's not saying like you're going to do a less job, less job of being holy. In fact, he's saying you can do a greater job of being holy. I wouldn't have said that before the week, but I, I think he is saying you can be more obedient to God, but it's not going to come from trying harder on the outside. It's going to come from being changed on the inside. This applies. We, we see it all around us. Like, I'm just, let me just give you some. I think this is so important. Because we have it backwards. Even in our world, even with these teachings of Jesus, we have it so backwards like this. I've said it already. I'm going to say it again. Working for your salvation doesn't work. You are not going to have a right relationship with God by trying harder. You're going to have a right relationship with God by submitting to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's it. Because your righteousness will never surpass the teachers of law and the Pharisees. Uh, You have to. You have to be cleansed in order to have that right relationship with God and you get cleansed through the blood of Jesus in a spiritual sense. Number two, and I see this all around me, expecting people who don't love God to act like they do. That's stupid. We, we We have just, we have, Put our moral standards on the world around us. And these people have not been changed on the inside. And so they're never going to look like we who love Jesus and are overflowing with righteousness. I just don't understand. I mean, Paul literally says, literally in the Bible, it's in the Bible, Paul says, I don't hold people outside the church to my standards. But man, I'm going to be really judgmental of those in the church. We got a bunch of Christians running around going, don't judge me, but we're going to judge everybody outside the church. We've totally flipped it on its head and it's in part because we've ignored what Jesus says here where he flips righteousness and turns it inside out or or like this. I mean, this is all, all around us focusing on changing our behavior without changing our hearts. It's just never going to work. I mean, that's what we've done in Christian circles, right? Like, we, we get up here, and I'm going to say we, we give these self-help sermons, but we never talk about what needs to happen on the inside in order to actually help us be obedient to the things that God has called us to on the outside. I mean, it's like this. This is a big one. I talk about this a lot because I struggle with this. But, like, removing worry without growing our faith, Right? I mean, that's what we do. We're like, stop worrying, Chad. Stop biting your fingernails because you're always stressed. But we're not spending any time in prayer or reading the Psalms where this guy is struggling with the things that we're struggling with. And so we sit around going, stop worrying, stop worrying, stop worrying. Worrying is just a symptom of a heart problem. And and not to pick on just me, you know, like removing lust without striving for purity I mean, like, when we don't really genuinely want to be totally pure on our insides because we love God and we've seen how Jesus lived and we're so thankful that he would offer his life for us, then we're never going to stop lusting. Removing anger without finding our peace in God, I mean, it's just not going to happen. And and this one's just in the world, it's so sad because we see it, right, as the American culture moves further and further away from God, we see so many people that don't see any value in themselves. And, and we, just, we just strive, even in Christian circles though, to improve our self-worth without trying to understand how God views us. You're never going to improve your self-value or self-worth or whatever word they use now without understanding how much God values you. And so we go, oh, think positive thoughts and look in the mirror. I mean, just like every self-help book, look in the mirror and say, wow, you are important and you're good and you're gonna accomplish great things. And we're not even thinking about how much God loves us because what increases self-value and self-worth is actually understanding our value and worth as it was given by God in creation and shown to us as he willingly suffered and died died on a cross for us. Or how about this one? going to church without a passion to worship and grow. I mean, it's going to be really hard to get here every Sunday if you really don't want to worship God and grow in your spiritual life and connect with other believers. And you'll drag yourself here each and every week, and eventually you'll stop because you'll be like, I don't really like it. Of course you don't like it. We're not, we're not here so that you'll like it. We're here to impact you, and frankly, you'll never be impacted if you don't have a desire inside to glorify God with your life. You'll leave and think, decent speech, guy. That's pretty much what will happen. Jesus turns righteousness inside out, but that doesn't mean that he lessens the standards of of holiness. Because I think people who get this right often and, and theoretically understand that righteousness is on the inside say, well, it doesn't matter what I do on the outside. No, 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 no. We should want holiness. We should want to live in the way that God wants us to live. In fact, Jesus in these next few passages is going to be like, hey, you heard the easy way, let me tell you the hard way. But before he gets to that, he says, look, unless you follow these commands, you're going to be least in the kingdom. You'll still be in, but you're going to be least. Unless you follow these, if you follow these commands, you'll be great, but let me tell you, it's never going to happen by trying harder. It's only going to happen as you become more and more righteous on the inside through me. And so, it's just so clear. I mean, there's these major applications. Like, if you're not a Christian, you're not bound for heaven. And the only way to be bound for heaven, to have a relationship with God, to know that your prayers are being heard, to have the peace and the joy that I know you want, to have the forgiveness for the sins, for the things that you regret terribly, the only way to have it is internal and spiritual. And it's saying, Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross for me. I believe that you came back to life and I'm going to turn my life over to you. I will declare you as my savior and my king. But once you have it, once you have that, you need to be a person that doesn't try to change your behavior just on the outside, I mean, that's good. You shouldn't punch people in the face when you feel like it, you know. Uh, I mean, there's behaviors that we try to train into our children, right? There's certain things that Hazel knows are never going to be okay. I, I, I let Hazel, I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm telling you, she'll forgive me when she's older. I love her a lot. Uh, she she says something about not wanting to have mommy and daddy anymore. Did I tell you this in a sermon already? Oh, man, and and I was thinking about foster care because we're... Uh, and. <laughs> And and I just, in a way that no three-year-old probably could ever understand, even though, you know, my children are very advanced, in no way. <laughs> uh she probably understood this, but I launched into this whole, like some children cannot be with their parents and how dare you say you don't want parents and you will never say this again. I was just trying to change a behavior, right? I mean, that's it. You're never gonna say that again. That's it. Um, and if you do, there will be consequences. And so some of that is socially really important, but what Jesus is saying is spiritually, it's not so important. What's important spiritually is is growing in your love and your passion and your devotion and your desire for holiness because of those things inside in places that nobody else can see. I think this is why so many people, just so many people become Christians, I'm gonna put it in quotes, hang out in churches for a little while and they say, well, I don't really feel different. It's because people have been trying to curb their behavior and not help them grow in their love and their devotion and their passion, their true righteousness. With God. That's all the Pharisees were doing, and nobody really liked them. <laughs> they respected them, but they didn't really like them. So, look, you can only become a Christian on the inside, not by working. And you can only grow as a Christian and have a righteousness that surpasses people who are trying so hard on the outside by developing what's inside. Because in this passage, the application is simply this: Jesus turns righteousness inside out. Let me pray for you. God, I know I've been as as guilty as you know almost anybody when it comes to these things, and uh, frankly, in the last year and a half, God or so, when when we've really locked in on what the mission and the vision of this church is and, and said, this is about glorifying God. Uh, have, have I done even a slightly better job at helping people understand that, you know, if we're, if we're removing anger or we're learning to trust you or we're having better families or whatever it might be, God, only when those things are connected to a passion for your glory, are they really going to happen and matter? Um, but I've been as guilty as anybody. And I pray that this church would not be a church that tries to curb people's behavior, God, but, but as a church that tries to help people love you more and be more passionate about seeing you glorified and uh, helping people desire holiness, God. Because, God, we know that you came to fulfill the scriptures. You came, God, to die on a cross after living a perfectly sinless life so that we might have forgiveness of sin for, so that we might God have a right relationship with you even though we have done so many wrong things. Lord I know there's, there's people in front of me this morning that, that God are working to remove sins. They're trying so hard but I pray God that That they instead, that they would remember that, that you turned righteousness inside out and and God, they would strive to develop their relationship with you, Lord. God, you know my personal story with you is that in a moment I removed so much sin. And it's because you you knocked me to my knees, God, with with my incredible sinfulness, but your incredible grace. And God, I still sin and I've done plenty wrong, but in a single moment you did so much to move me forward on the outside, but it wasn't because I was trying (laughs) to do certain things better. It was because I learned to love you more. And I pray that that would be true of people here, whether it's in a moment or over years, God, that they would love you more and more because they would understand you better and better. And God, I pray that you would produce out of that a righteousness that surpasses the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.